Welcome to Fast Asleep. Happy you're here. You are not alone. These words can be very comforting, can't they? You are not alone. Hmm, not so comforting when you're standing in a house, a big old house. It's supposed to be vacant. Writer W.F. Harvey, whose short stories are described as minor masterpieces, takes us into that big old house in our first story today. And in our second story, William Fryer Harvey knocks us off kilter with feverish heat and what are probably the last written words of our protagonist. Oh, and this second story, you've got to listen to it carefully because this one is full of um, Easter eggs. Harvey, Harvey really gives us many Easter eggs along the way and boy, do they ever sweeten the ending of this story. So, let's learn just a tiny bit about Mr. Harvey. He has the distinction of the letters A-M after his name, and that stands for the Albert Medal for Life Saving. It's a British award, recognizing his service and a particular rescue he made during World War I as a surgeon lieutenant in the Royal Navy. Harvey was left with lung damage as a result of this rescue, but it didn't keep him from writing some really wonderful stories. After his death, the strangely creepy, charismatic actor Peter Lorre starred in the film version of Harvey's most famous work, The Beast with Five Fingers. Oh, don't worry, you will hear that story right here on an upcoming episode of Fast Asleep. So now for today's episode. Two selections, remember. The first, remember that big old house? The first is the clock. And immediately following, August Heat. Both, of course, by W.F. Harvey. Tuck in, everybody. The clock. I liked your description of the people at the pension, the lodging school. I can just picture that sinister Miss Cornelius with her toupee and clinking bangles. I don't wonder you felt frightened that night when you found her sleepwalking in the corridor. But after all, why shouldn't she sleepwalk? As to the movements of the furniture in the lounge on that Sunday, well, you are, I suppose, in an earthquake zone. Though an earthquake seems too big an explanation for the ringing of that little handbell on the mantelpiece. <laughs> it's rather as if our parlor maid, yes, another new one, were to call a uh, stray elephant to account for that teapot we found broken yesterday. Mm. You have, at least in Italy, escaped the eternal problem of maids. 
Yes. Yes, 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 my dear. <laughs> I most certainly do believe you. Now, I have never had experiences quite like yours, but your mention of Miss Cornelius has reminded me of something rather similar that happened nearly, oh, 20 years ago, soon after I left school. I was staying with my aunt in Hampstead. You remember her, I expect, or if not her, the poodle, Monsieur, that she used to make perform such pathetic tricks. There was another guest whom I had never met before, a Mrs. Caleb. She lived in Lewis and had been staying with my aunt for about a fortnight, recuperating after a series of domestic upheavals, which had culminated in her two servants leaving her at an hour's notice, without any reason, according to Mrs. Caleb. But I wondered. I had never seen the maids. I had seen Mrs. Caleb, and frankly, I disliked her. Well, she left the same sort of impression on me as I gather your Miss Cornelius leaves on you. Something queer and secretive, underground, if you can use the expression rather than underhand, and I could feel in my body that she did not like me. Well, it was summer. Joan Denton, you remember her, oh, her husband was killed in Gallipoli, had suggested that I should go down to spend the day with her. Her people had rented a little cottage some three miles out of Lewis. We arranged a day. It was gloriously fine for a wonder, and I had planned to leave that stuffy old Hampstead house before the old ladies were astir. <laughs> uh-huh. But Mrs. Caleb waylaid me in the hall just as I was going out. Oh, well, I wonder, she said. I wonder if you could do me a small favor. If you do have any time to spare in Lewis, only if you do, would you be so kind as to call at my house? I left a little traveling clock there in the hurry of parting. Now, if it's not in the drawing room, it will be in my bedroom or in one of the maids' bedrooms. Mm -hmm. I know I lent it to the cook, who was a poor riser, but I cannot remember if she returned it. Would it be too much to ask? This house has been locked up for twelve days, but everything is in order. I have the keys here. Uh, the large one is for the garden gate, the small one for the front door. I could only accept. And she proceeded to tell me how I could find Ash Grove House. You will feel quite like a burglar, she said. But mind, it's only if you have time to spare. As a matter of fact, I found myself glad of any excuse to kill time. Poor old Joan had been taken suddenly ill in the night. They feared appendicitis, 
and though her people were very kind and asked me to stay to lunch, I could see that I, I should only be in the way, and made Mrs. Caleb's commission an excuse for an early departure. I found Ash Grove without difficulty. It was a medium-sized red brick house standing by itself in a high-walled garden that bounded a narrow lane. A flagged path led from the gate to the front door, in front of which grew not an ash tree, but a monkey puzzle. Oh, that must have made the rooms unnecessarily gloomy. The side door, as I expected, was locked. The dining room and drawing room lay on either side of the hall. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, well, as the windows of both were shuttered, I left the hall door open and in the dim light looked round hurriedly for the clock, which from what Mrs. Caleb had said, I hardly expected to find in either of the downstairs rooms. It was neither on table nor mantelpiece. The rest of the furniture was carefully covered over with white dust sheets. And then I went upstairs. But before doing so, I closed the front door. I did, in fact, feel <laughs> rather like a burglar. And well, I thought that if anyone did happen to see the front door open, I might have difficulty in explaining things. Happily, the upstairs windows were not shuttered. I made a hurried search of the principal bedrooms. Uh, they had been left in apple pie order. Nothing was out of place, but there was no sign of Mrs. Caleb's clock. The impression that the house gave me, you know, the sense of personality that a house conveys, was neither pleasing nor displeasing, but it was stuffy. Stuffy from the absence of fresh air, with an additional stuffiness added, that seemed to come out from the hangings and quilts and antimacassars, the coverings for the backs and arms of the furniture. The corridor on to which the bedrooms I had examined opened communicated with a smaller wing, an older part of the house, I imagined, which contained a box room and the maid's sleeping quarters. <laughs> the last door that I unlocked Oh, I should say that the doors of all the rooms were locked and relocked by me after I had glanced inside them, contained the object of my search. Mrs. Caleb's traveling clock was on the mantelpiece, ticking away merrily. Mm. That was how I thought of it at first. And then, for the first time, I realized that there was something wrong. The clock. The clock had no business to be ticking. The house had been shut up for 12 days. 
No one had come in to air it or to light fires. I remember how Mrs. Caleb had told my aunt that if she left the keys with a neighbor, she was never sure who might get hold of them. And yet the clock was going. Well, now I wondered if some vibration had set the mechanism in motion, and I pulled out my watch to see the time. It was five minutes to one. The clock on the mantelpiece said four minutes to the hour. Then, without quite knowing why, I shut the door onto the landing, locked myself in, and again looked round the room. Nothing was out of place. The only thing that might have called for remark was that there appeared to be a slight indentation on the pillow and the bed. Oh, but the mattress was a feather mattress, and well, you know how difficult it is to make them perfectly smooth. Well, you won't need to be told that I gave a hurried glance under the bed. Do you remember your supposed burglar in number six at St. Ursula's? And then, much more reluctantly, opened the doors of two horribly capacious roomy cupboards, both happily empty, except for a framed text with its face to the wall. By this time, I really was frightened. The clock went on ticking. I had a horrible feeling that an alarm might go off at any moment. And the thought of being in that empty house was almost too much for me. However, I made an attempt to pull myself together. It might, after all, be a 14-day clock. And if it were, well, then it would be almost run down. I... I could roughly find out how long the clock had been going by winding it up. I hesitated to put the matter to the test, but uncertainty was too much for me. I took it out of its case and began to wind. I had scarcely turned the winding screw twice when it stopped. Oh, the clock was not, clearly not, running down. The hands of that clock had been set in motion probably only an hour or two before. I felt cold and faint, and going to the window, I threw up the sash, letting in the sweet, live air of the garden. I knew now that the house was queer, horribly queer. Could someone be living in this house? Was someone else in the house right now? I thought that I had been in all the rooms, but 
Had I? Well, I had only just opened the bathroom door, and I had certainly not opened any cupboards, well, except those in the room in which I was. Then, as I stood by that open window, wondering what I should do next, and feeling that I just couldn't go down that corridor, into that darkened hall, to fumble at the latch at the front door without, I don't know, with, I don't know, I don't know what, behind me, I heard a noise. It was very faint at first, and it seemed to be coming from the stairs. It was a curious noise. Not the noise of anyone climbing up the stairs, but you'll laugh if this letter reaches you by a morning post of something, something hopping up the stairs like a a very big bird would hop. I heard it on the landing, and it stopped. Then there was a curious scratching noise against one of the bedroom doors. The sort of noise you can make with the nail of your little finger scratching polished wood whatever it was, was coming slowly down the corridor, scratching at the doors as it went. Oh, I could stand it no longer. Nightmare pictures of locked doors opening filled my brain. I took up the clock, wrapped it in my Macintosh, and dropped it out of the window onto a flower bed. And then I managed to crawl out of the window. And getting a grip of that sill, successfully negotiated, as the journalists would say, a 12-foot drop. Hey, so much for our much-amused, abused Jim at St. Ursula's. <laughs> Picking up the Macintosh, I ran round to the front door and locked it. Then I felt I could breathe, but not until I was on the far side of the gate in the garden wall did I feel safe. Oh, then I remembered that the bedroom window was open. Ah, mm. what was I to do? Wild horses wouldn't have dragged me into that house again unaccompanied. I, I made up my mind to go to the police station and tell them everything. I should be laughed at, of course, and they might easily refuse to believe my story of Mrs. Caleb's commission. I'd actually begun to walk down the lane in the direction of the town, when I chanced to look back at the house. The window that I had left open was shut. No, my dear, I did not see any face or 
anything dreadful like that. And of course, it may have shut by itself. It was an ordinary sash window. And you know, they are often difficult to keep open. And the rest? Well, there's really nothing more to tell. I didn't even see Mrs. Caleb again. She had had some sort of fainting fit just before lunchtime, my aunt informed me on my return, and had had to go to bed. Well, next morning I traveled down to Cornwall to join Mother and the children. I thought I had forgotten all about it. But when, three years later, Uncle Charles suggested giving me a traveling clock for a 21st birthday present, I was foolish enough to prefer the alternative that he offered, a collected edition of the works of the Scottish essayist and historian, Thomas Carlyle. And now our second story. August Heat. Feniston Road, Clapham. August 20th, 190. The last number is missing. I have had what I believe to be the most remarkable day in my life, and while the events are still fresh in my mind, I wish to put them down on paper as clearly as possible. Let me say at the outset that my name is James Clarence Withencroft. I am 40 years old, in perfect health, never having known a day's illness. By profession, I am an artist, not a very successful one, but I earn enough money by my black and white work to satisfy my necessary wants. My only near relative, a sister, died five years ago, so that I am independent. I breakfast this morning at nine, and after glancing through the morning paper, I lighted my pipe and proceeded to let my mind wander, in the hope that I might chance upon some subject for my pencil. The room though door and windows were open, was oppressively hot. And I had just made up my mind that the coolest and most comfortable place in the neighborhood would be the deep end of the public swimming bath when the idea came. I began to draw. So intent was I on my work that I left my lunch untouched, only stopping work when the clock of St. Jude's struck four. The final result for a hurried sketch was, I felt sure, the best thing I had done. It showed a criminal in the dock immediately after the judge had pronounced sentence. Oh, the man was fat 
enormously fat, while the flesh hung in rolls about his chin. It creased his huge, stumpy neck. He was clean-shaven. Perhaps I should say a few days before he must have been clean-shaven and almost bald. He stood in the dock, his short, clumsy fingers clasping the rail, looking straight in front of him. The feeling that his expression conveyed was not so much one of horror as of utter, absolute collapse. There seemed nothing in the man strong enough to sustain that mountain of flesh. I rolled up the sketch and, without quite knowing why, placed it in my pocket. Then, with the rare sense of happiness, which the knowledge of a good thing well done gives, I left the house. I believe that I set out with the idea of calling upon Trenton, for I remember walking along Lytton Street and turning to the right along Gilchrist Road at the bottom of the hill where the men were at work on the new tram lines. From there onwards, I have only the vaguest recollection of where I went. The one thing of which I was fully conscious was the awful heat that came up from the dusty asphalt pavement as an almost palpable wave. I longed for the thunder promised by the great banks of copper-colored cloud that hung low over the western sky. I must have walked five or six miles when a small boy roused me from my reverie by asking the time. It was twenty minutes to seven. When he left me, I began to take stock of my bearings. I found myself standing before a gate that led into a yard, bordered by a strip of thirsty earth, where there were flowers, purple stalk and scarlet geranium. Above the entrance was a board with the inscription, Charles Atkinson, Monumental Mason, Worker in English and Italian Marbles. From the yard itself came a cheery whistle, the noise of hammer blows, and the cold sound of steel meeting stone. A sudden impulse made me enter. A man was sitting with his back towards me, busy at work on a slab of curiously veined marble. He turned round as he heard my steps, and I stopped short. It was the man... I had been drawing, whose portrait lay in my pocket. Well, he sat there, huge and elephantine, the sweat pouring from his scalp, which he wiped with a red silk handkerchief. But though the face was the same, the expression was absolutely different. He greeted me smiling, 
as if we were old friends, and shook my hand. I apologized for my intrusion. Everything is hot and glary outside, I said. This seems an oasis in the wilderness. <laughs> I don't know about the oasis, he replied, but it certainly is hot, as hot as hell. Take a seat, sir. He pointed to the end of the gravestone on which he was at work, and I sat down. Oh, that's a beautiful piece of stone you've got hold of, I said. He shook his head. In a way it is, he answered. The surface here is as fine as anything you could wish, but there's a big flaw at the back, though I don't expect you'd ever notice it. I could never make really a good job of a bit of marble like that. Mm -mm. It would be all right in the summer, like this. It, it wouldn't mind the blasted heat, but wait till the winter comes. There's nothing quite like frost to find out the weak points in stone. Oh, well, then what's it for? I asked. And the man burst out laughing. <laughs> You'd hardly believe me if I was to tell you that it's for an exhibition, but it's the truth. Artists have exhibitions, so do grocers and butchers. We have them too. All the latest little things in headstones, you know. He went on to talk of marbles, which sort best withstood wind and rain, and which were easiest to work with. And then he talked of his garden and a new sort of carnation he had bought. At the end of every other minute, he would drop his tools, wipe the shining head, and curse the heat. I said little, for I felt uneasy. There was something unnatural, uncanny, in meeting this man. I tried at first to persuade myself that I had seen him before, that his face, unknown to me, had found a place in some out-of-the-way corner of my memory. But I knew that I was practicing little more than a plausible piece of self-deception. Mr. Atkinson finished his work, spat on the ground, and got up with a sigh of relief. There. And what do you think of that? He said with an air of evident pride. The inscription, which I read for the first time, was this. Sacred to the memory of James Clarence Withencroft, born January 18th, 1860. He passed away very suddenly on August 20th, 19.0. And again, the number's missing. In the midst of life, we are in death.
For some time, I sat in silence. Then a cold shudder ran down my spine. I asked him where he had seen the name. Oh, I, I didn't see it anywhere, replied Mr. Atkinson. I wanted some name, and I put down the first that came into my head. Why do you want to know? It's a strange coincidence, but it happens to be mine. He gave a long, low whistle. And, and the dates? I can only answer for one of them, and that's correct. It's a rum-go, he said. A peculiar event. But he knew less than I did. I told him of my morning's work. I took the sketch from my pocket and showed it to him. And as he looked, the expression of his face altered until it became more and more like that of the man I had drawn. And it was only the day before yesterday, he said, that I told Maria there were no such things as ghosts. Neither of us had seen a ghost, but I knew what he meant. You probably heard my name, I said. <laughs> and you must have seen me somewhere and have forgotten it. Were you at Clacton-on-the-Sea last July? I had never been to Clacton in my life. We were silent. For some time. We were both looking at the same thing. The two dates on the gravestone. And one was right. Come inside. Have some supper, said Mr. Atkinson. His wife is a cheerful little woman with the flaky red cheeks of the country-bred. Her husband introduced me as a friend of his who was an artist. The result was unfortunate, for after the sardines and watercress had been removed, she brought me out a Doré Bible, a popular illustrated Bible, and I had to sit and express my admiration for nearly half an hour. I went outside and found Atkinson sitting on the gravestone, smoking. We resumed the conversation at the point we had left off. You, you must excuse my asking, I said. Do you know of anything you've done for which you could be put on trial? He shook his head. I'm not a bankrupt. The business is prosperous enough. Three years ago, I gave turkeys to some of the guardians at Christmas. But that's all I can think of. And they were small ones, too. 
he added after an afterthought. He got up, fetched a can from the porch, and began to water the flowers. Twice a day, regular, in the hot weather, he said. And then the heat sometimes gets the better of the delicate ones. Oh, and ferns, good Lord, they could never stand it. Where do you live? I told him my address. It would take an hour's quick walk to get back home. It's like this, he said. We'll look at the matter straight. If you go back home tonight, you take your chance of accidents. A cart may run you over, and there's always banana skins and orange peel, to say nothing of falling ladders. He spoke of the improbable with an intense seriousness that would have been laughable six hours before. But I did not laugh. The best thing we can do, he continued, is for you to stay here till twelve o'clock. We'll go upstairs and smoke. It may be cooler inside. To my surprise, I agreed. We are sitting in a long, low room beneath the eaves. Atkinson has sent his wife to bed. He himself is busy sharpening some tools in a little oil stone, smoking one of my cigars the while. The air seems charged with thunder. I am writing this at a shaky table before the open window. The leg is cracked, and Atkinson, who seems a handy man with his tools, is going to mend it as soon as he has finished putting an edge on his chisel. It is after eleven. Now, I shall be gone in less than an hour. But the heat is stifling. The heat is enough to send a man mad. Good night.